Will we continue in the book of 2 Corinthians? We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So remember the, the, the theme of the letter so far is Paul writing to a church that's largely rejected him. It seems many have repented and come back and, and received Paul, but through the whole process, this being the fourth letter he's written them, two that we don't have, but two that we do have, the fourth letter he's written, he is constantly pursuing these folks. Uh, he's hidden nothing of his heart from them. He says he's taken great pride in them, and he's with them in life and in death. He's not going to stop loving them. He's filled with joy even in his affliction and filled with comfort. So the, the question that we're going to, to ponder this morning is how? How is that possible? Uh, I think we all experience a level of anxiety in life. Paul definitely feels anxiety. He talks about his anxiety for all the churches and for this church in particular. Paul is depressed. He's downcast. He talks about how he, he, he's able to sustain his work even in the midst of his emotional stress. It wasn't too long ago, just before my arrival, that the church was undergoing something like probably what was happening in Corinth. False teachers leading people astray, lots of bickering and fighting. And... If you talk to Jerry and Jim, who were the elders at the time, uh, they will tell you of some of the emotional heartache, the stress, the anxiety. They understand a little bit about what Paul was enduring in this church. So what did Paul do in particular? He lived like Jesus. So it's just Christian living. I'm not going to try to glamorize it. It's just Christian living. But we're going to look at it from the perspective of Paul's mental health, his resilience, his emotional health. To use modern language, we're going to look at it from his resiliency and his mental health. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-6, through 6, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Amen. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Please be seated. Let us pray. 
Almighty God, you are the one who wrote these words for your church. We pray that we would understand them and that by your Holy Spirit, we would be encouraged and ministered to. That I would say only things that are appropriate for this morning and that I would speak truthfully and boldly. And that your people's heart would be humbled and they would receive these words as the word of Christ. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is within us. Please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Christian life is, is really what we're going to be talking about, but I'm going to again focus on Paul's resiliency in life, his emotional and mental health in life. What do I mean by the Christian life? Well, the Holy Spirit, when He invades you, when He regenerates you, when He possesses you, He changes your heart and your whole perspective changes. For the first time, you can see God clearly. This is what Paul is doing. He's looking to God. He's also able to see his need to love others in light of God's love for him. So he's loving others well. And because the Holy Spirit and His grace and His love for God and His treatment of others, all of this being affected by God's love for Him, we see that this really is part of Paul's ability to sustain the difficulties and the hardships of life and ministry and still be healthy in his soul. To have a a healthy and resilient mental and emotional attitude. I think it's also of note that in Calvin's Institutes, he starts the very first chapter by saying really that all of life is about two things, seeing God clearly and seeing each other and yourself clearly. This really is is all that we'll be discussing, is the intricacies of these particular scriptures as they relate to the Christian life and how it affects your health, your emotional health. We see three things, I think. First of all, that we live, and Paul lived with an open heart. I'm going to discuss that once again. He lived with an open heart. What does that mean? Secondly, he lived generously with his persecutors. And he had actual persecutors in the church. He had people who opposed him, who slandered him, who who abused him who rejected him, and he lived generously with them. And finally, we'll see that he's honest about life. He's honest about life. He's honest about his depression, his anxiety. He doesn't hide it with his church. He's honest about it. And we'll close with Paul's closing of this particular passage, and that's with God. So Paul has been under an extreme amount of emotional stress. He's told us already in this letter that he always has anxiety for all the churches. Um, If you've ever felt anxiety, if you've ever felt the, the opposition of people, if you've ever been falsely accused or or put down, Paul is feeling much of this. If you've ever been fearful of facing people, Paul is feeling this as well. He says in the text this morning that he was depressed and downcast. 
And I believe we're going to see through the letter, not just in this particular passage, but through this letter, how Paul responds to such internal, internal turmoil. Today, the world wants to find answers to the problems of life, to anxiety and stress and depression, primarily apart from God. You turn to psychologists and you turn to pharmaceuticals and prescription medicine and, and drugs and psychologists. And, and certainly I'm not against the use of medicine that helps people get a healthy chemical balance, etc. Or psychologists or psychiatrists, they're not all bad. But the point is psychology and psychiatry and even pharmaceuticals don't treat the root problem of the human soul. They're, they're all around the edges because they don't approach humans as spiritual creatures and they don't acknowledge God. The starting point for all psychology is atheism. So they're only treating symptoms. They're good at finding the symptoms and they're good at finding out why you may feel a certain way. But they can't treat the root problem. What we have is very different. What the Word of God does is it goes straight to the root. We know why we feel the way we do. We know that sin is real. That's why pastoral counseling and biblical counseling and private instruction in the Word of God is so much to be preferred than secular sources of counseling. And certainly I'm not advocating counseling. I think that pastors and elders, they just do this naturally. This is what we're called to do. The personal ministry of God's Word applied to people exactly where they live and exactly where they are. I would love to talk to any of you, anytime, about life. It seems like what has happened in culture is as the culture has left the church, what the pastors and the elders once did to help people see life correctly now has been pawned off to secular psychologists. And it's to the detriment of society in general because they do not have the truth. What is the truth that you find in God's Word that you will hear me help you understand more clearly in the midst of your problems and in the midst of life? You're a sinner. And you have a Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible is authoritative. It's right and true. Jesus is the Savior and Shepherd of your soul. He's a good shepherd. The Holy Spirit lives in you and He is your comforter. And this church, this community of believers, provides resiliency in your life and stability as we walk through life together. So Paul shows us, I think, throughout this letter, how he has dealt with all the struggles he's had in life. Again, we're going to look at this through a different lens, this, this text, with focus on his mental strain and his emotional strain and the downcast nature of his spirit, the depression, the anxiety that he feels. As I said, I think we see three, three primary things in this particular text that are speaking to this issue. First, we see this in... Um, chapter 7, verse 2, where Paul says, Make room in your hearts for us. 
And he's referring back to chapter 6, where he said, we've spoken to you freely, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. He says his heart is, his heart is wide open to these people. It's very dangerous, isn't it, to think about this? These people have done nothing but accuse, abuse, persecute this man. And yet he says, my heart is wide open to you. In verse 13, he tells them, widen your hearts to us also. Paul says that we should be treating each other with hearts that are wide open. The opposite of this is what? It's closing your heart. And we all know what this is intuitively because we've all done it. This is to reject relationship, to hold people at arm's length, to take the offense that you receive and to embrace it and let it fester in bitterness, to stand in pride and to look at others as less than yourself. That's to close your heart. And Paul says, do the opposite. He says, open your heart. What does that mean? It means just love each other. Show grace to each other. Don't hold grudges, but transparently communicate with each other love. He's found comfort in this grace-filled love and this forgiveness. Overlooking offenses despite the very serious attacks that he's received left and right from the church in Corinth and really from all the churches. He's left his heart wide open to them. And what's the result? He didn't strike back in personal animosity. Rather, he pursued them. And that's what he says later in the same verse. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. How could he do this? How could he just take all of the assaults and just put them aside? Well, he holds an eternal perspective, certainly. He doesn't take offense. He's, he's determined not to take offense. So when you are feeling offended, when you are, are feeling persecuted, when you're feeling accused or slighted, you actually have a choice. What are you going to do with these feelings? Are you going to take them and, and hold on to them? Close your heart? Are you going to leave your heart open and give it to the Lord? And say, God, this is, this is yours. I'm not going to be offended. Paul's heart was wide open. He pursued those who attacked him. He pursued them in love. He pursued relationship with the very people that were trying to destroy him. Of these verses we read, Calvin says that a godly man, when assaulted by others, will do one of two things, or both. He'll either ignore the offense, or he'll double down in love. He'll pursue them in love, with increased love. And Paul seems to have done both. He ignored the offenses and they were great. And he pursued the same people. They were persecuting him with love. And in this, heart, in this way, his heart was kept wide open. In this way, his heart was not closed off. And when the heart is closed off, of course, the effects are bitterness, certainly, but it's a long-term effect of just debilitation of all your relationships. Your unforgiveness and your bitterness and your pride, they actually don't free you. It's not liberating to hold a, a grudge as much as you feel that person deserves it. It doesn't free you up to live life. 
It actually enslaves you. That person has a hold on you. And actually it's Satan who gets a hold of your heart. And you're bound up with these emotions all the time. And Paul says, I chose the opposite route. I chose the way of Christ. I opened my heart to you. In verse 3 he says, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. In other words, for all of life, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, and he's not talking about the false teachers. He's talking about his brothers and his sisters in the church, those who have the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you're in our hearts and we're going to die together and live together. Brothers and sisters, this is our message as well. If you have faith in Christ and you're in this church, this is for life. We're going to walk together to heaven. We're going to die together and we're going to live together. No matter what. In Paul's intense emotional distress and depression, he chose to love them and to tell them, I'm with you for the long haul. I'm not leaving. And truly, this is the Christian way of life. That's just Christianity. We don't give up on people. There's no such thing as a hopeless cause or hopeless relationship. We keep our hearts open. We live a life of grace with others. We live a life of transparent love with others. We're committed to live in community together until death. So this is an important key to spiritual health and mental health for Paul, a loving and committed relationship focused on Jesus. Not forgiving is certainly the opposite, the way of Satan and the way of the world. Reminds me, and it should remind all of us, that there's no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. Jesus clearly taught this. If you don't forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. So look into your hearts and see if there's unforgiveness that dwells there and choose to forgive. And often this isn't a one-time deal. Just because you choose to forgive now in this moment doesn't mean that you won't be tempted later with more offense from the same event, maybe the same person. It may mean that you continue to forgive when these thoughts come. And actually what Satan means for evil, to accuse you and to oppress you and to make you feel these offenses again and again, what Satan means for evil, God means for good. Because if you take these offenses and you turn them to prayer for that person, it all flips. And certainly this is God's purpose. So we should be forgiving people, not prideful people, not graceless people, but forgiving people. It's part of our DNA. This is the Holy Spirit. To not be open-hearted is to invite bitterness, not only into your own heart, but into church. In Hebrews 12, the writer says that the root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, by it many are defiled. You defile the whole church when you don't forgive, and when you hold on and close your heart and hold on to bitterness. And to live like this certainly will bring on an amount of depression, your heart will be downcast. So this is point one. Live in open-hearted love. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Keep short accounts with others. Choose to ignore, to love, to forgive quickly. And keep forgiving. 
Pursue relationships with those who persecute you. This is part of Paul's success, is living the Christian life. If you feel like you've been accused or oppressed or unjustly treated, Paul was more. And he still chose to love these folks. This certainly is the teaching of Christ. If you have something, or if you remember that your brother has something against you, not that you've been offended, but you think your brother has something against you, go to him and be reconciled to your brother. We lay down our pride before each other. We live with open hearts. And in that way, God's comfort and His grace flows to your heart and to others. Secondly, we see that Paul lives generously with others. His heart is open and this provides or directs a generous attitude toward everyone else. So one flows to the other. He says in verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness to you. In other words, I'm speaking honestly to you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. And in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. So let these words sink in. Do you realize who he's talking to? These are the people who are pursuing him, who despise him, who are slandering him, who are persecuting him. And he says, I have great pride in you, and I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, all the affliction you brought to me, I'm overflowing with joy. This isn't just uh, flowery language. Paul is being honest with these people. And his response has been constant love and grace and truth. It's the way of Christ. It's just being a Christian. And this has kept his his soul happy and healthy, even in the midst of hardship. It's the way of Jesus. It's one of Jesus' first teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, this is just what the sons of the Father do. This is how the people in God's family act. That's all it is. And Paul said he was treating the church as a father would treat a beloved son. And these words that he spoke about his joy in them and his pride in them are genuine. It's how he really feels. So the question I think is, how did he get to the place where he takes the hurt? And we, we have to assume that the hurt in his heart was real. His heart was broken. He felt the arrows and the pangs of every insult as all of us do when we're attacked. And this rejection, how did he take all that and how was it replaced by pride and joy and love for these people? Well, he's been praying for them. We know this from this letter. And he's focusing on the positive aspects of the situation for him and for the church. In other words, God's providence is real. This is what we do as well. Something happens in life, you don't understand it, what do you do? Well, you have a choice. You can focus on the problem and grovel and complain and grumble and wonder why God has left you. Or you can hear the words of Isaiah 40. Don't you remember? Don't you remember who I am? 
I'm in charge. Trust my providence. So Paul remembers to pray. He remembers God's providence. And he speaks kind words and thinks kind things about the people that are offending him. You're like, wow, pastor, you're getting into a little bit of psycho mumbo jumbo. Like, this is real. I'm not talking about mind over matter, thinking kind of stuff. I'm not talking about kind of the Oprah heresy that you manifest anything that you desire just by saying positive things to yourself. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a biblical truth. It's just practical biblical wisdom. And Paul talks specifically about this. Think on good things. The letter to the Philippian church is a letter that addresses personal strife. And in chapter 4, he talks to two women who apparently are just at each other's throats. Read Philippians 4. These ladies were mad at each other, and Paul is instructing them how they need to behave. He's saying, this is how I live in these situations. This is how I guard my heart and my mind. Philippians 4.4 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. In other words, God is at work. He's providentially in charge of your life. Rejoice. He has you. Let your gentleness be known to all. So be gentle with each other, ladies. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Turn to God in prayer, ladies. Don't fight with each other. Pray for each other. Don't be anxious about this situation. Pray. And what happens? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. You will not understand how God, the Holy Spirit, comforts your soul, but He will. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will do what? will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Every problem in in human experience is addressed by the Word of God. Does God's Word address depression, mental stress, anxiety? Absolutely. God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is our responsibility? To live a Christian life. To trust God and His providence and to love other people. And then Paul continues. He says, here's what I think about. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We choose to think about good things about people or bad things about people. And Paul says, I'm going to think about good things. About a situation. About people. I'm going to think about the positive side of whatever that thing is that's troubling me. In the very next verse, Paul says, And the God of peace will be with you. So the Christian life would say that we take the personal offenses and angry thoughts and we put them aside to be of the same mind. Paul uses these words with these two ladies in Philippi. He said, ladies, be of the same mind. 
I love the fact that he doesn't dive into the weeds about, well, she said this and she did that and she said this and she did that. He just cuts through all of it and he said, ladies, be of the same mind and love each other. Think on good things. I know that there's much, much more to many relationship problems than this. And that many people have been deeply wounded. I'm not minimizing pain or anxiety at all. But living the Christian life certainly is more helpful than anything you could ever do. Thinking God's thoughts after Him. Remembering who He is. And thinking about what's true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy about the people who are offending us. This is loving others. And if you've noticed the times where you speak poorly of others, something also happens into your heart. And it's just this constant cycle of hardening your heart against somebody the more it comes out of your mouth. So the key is to stop thinking about it. Stop thinking the negative Terrible things that these people have have hurt you with or whatever. Will the relationship be immediately restored to perfection? Of course not. That requires two people. Will you please forgive me? Of course I'll forgive you. I love you in Christ. Amen. I would love to reconcile this relationship. So would I. You see there's a back and forth in the horizontal for a perfect relationship, for a restoration of relationship. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you being sound in body and in mind. And this means between you and God, you choose to forgive. Between you and God, you say, God, this relationship is not right. These people are rude, they're mean, they're hurtful, and yet I forgive them and I choose to love them. I'm going to think good things about them. I'm going to overlook their faults, overlook the offenses. I'm going to choose to give them the benefit of the doubt Justice is in your hands. I'm not going to pursue justice. I'm going to pursue love and relationship. Certainly, even a secular psychologist can see that this is a much healthier place to be emotionally. This is what has guarded Paul's heart and mind. This attitude that he discussed in Philippi. He takes the difficult people in the difficult situations and he prays. He pursues peace with them. He loves them. He thinks about the good rather than dwelling on the evil. And he chooses to rejoice always in God's providence. And this is why in 2 Corinthians 7, he can say in good conscience without any pretense to the Christian Corinthian church. These people have caused him so much pain. He says, I love you. I'm going to do life with you forever. You give me joy. This is a key to your spiritual and emotional health as well. Living the Christian life with Jesus Christ at the center. And to trust God for justice. To open your own heart. To be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. So Paul lives with an open heart, which produces a generous life with others. And thirdly, we see that he's honest about his life. It produces a transparent honesty with others. He says, even when I came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest and we were afflicted on every turn, fighting with, fighting without and fear within. Human beings 
in general are just dishonest with each other. Maybe not on purpose, but it's just human nature to hide, to hide things, to, to, to show your, your best light in public, to, to step out and, and look confident and mature. And certainly there's a place, I mean, none of us wants to be limp-wristed and just slobbering over our dismay in life. And No, we're strong in the Lord. But that doesn't mean we can't be honest with each other. And I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about we brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, how we treat each other. We can be honest about life. We can be honest with our brothers and sisters. This is part of being a Christian. This is part of living and dying together. Is honest communication. And this is what Paul does. In this letter, he's describing how he waited for a letter from Titus from the Corinthian church. He was awaiting their response to his rebuke. He wanted to see what was going to happen, how they were going to treat him. And it was stressful to him. There was none of this kind of stoic American, I'm just going to take it on the chin and no one's ever going to know how I really feel. That's not a Christian attitude. That's a worldly attitude. There's nothing in Paul's letter but open, honest-hearted transparency regarding his emotional pain. His, his heart is suffering. His mind is stressed. We see the truthfulness about his feelings everywhere in this letter. That's why this letter is so special. We see Paul's heart just poured out for the whole church to see. The afflictions, the heartache, the difficulties... the slander, the sorrow. And at the end of it all, he says, my heart is wide open. He says his body had no rest. He says he was physically exhausted. Have you ever been in a relationship where you're, you're trying so hard to work it out or to work through the relationship that it just, just makes you tired? Paul says he was exhausted. Our bodies had no rest. He says we were afflicted at every turn. In other words, he had no place to rest. Everywhere he went, he still felt the same burden. And he said there's fighting without and there was fear within. He was afraid. There was fear within. The suffering was external to his body, yes, but it was also internal. It was emotional. He was struggling, and because of his anxiety for the churches, all of it added up to him being depressed. Verse 6 says he was downcast. In chapter 1 of this letter, he said he was despairing of life. He didn't even want to live. He was honest about his life and his struggles for peace. And this is a gentle rebuke for all of us. When we come together in this church, and I'm not talking about the greetings as you pass each other in the aisle. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. But when you sit down with each other to talk, this is a time to open your heart. Well, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. You know you're not. Are you feeling good? Yeah, I'm feeling great. You know you don't. you got to talk. This is the way Paul lived. This is the way the church is called to live. Not to hide our difficulties but to allow each other to encourage each other. Paul says, as you have been comforted and strengthened, so you can comfort others. This is a a back and forth that is ordained by God. 
for our health. But if you're never honest, you're hurting yourself and you're hurting your brothers and your sisters who are walking this wilderness journey with you for life. Paul was honest about his struggles. He knew he had hope in God. He knew he he had hope in God's power to sustain him in the difficult ministry that he had. And he struggled to live in this reality daily. He just... He was working through this every day. He's a real person. Without God, and this is, I think, the key, being honest and open-hearted and being generous with others, it's all good, but you, you could find this going to a secular psychiatrist or a secular counselor. They'll tell you the same things, maybe. You see, without God, it's all nonsense. Jesus Christ is the one who makes all of this active and real in life. That's why Paul says in, chapter, or in verse 6, God comforts the downcast. God is the one who comforts our souls. It's not that we do certain things and then our souls are magically comforted. No, all of it is done for God, through God, to God. He comforts us. The Holy Spirit brings comfort to His people. Did you know that that's actually what paraclete, which is the the word in the Greek New Testament for the Holy Spirit, that's what paraclete means. Comforter. I will send my comforter to you. What love and care God has for us to send a comforter to us. In this world, we will have peace because of the Holy Spirit. Your Father loves you and He sends His comfort to you. And not only the Holy Spirit does He send to you, but He sends shepherds and to His church to guide them and, and comfort them with the love of Christ. That's my entire duty is to study the Word and to pray for you and pray for your, your health and your comfort in Christ. Paul was downcast. He was depressed and humble in heart and lying low. He was poor in spirit. He was mourning. And God, the comforter of the downcast, encouraged and comforted him. Paul knew that Isaiah 40, which we read already, was for him. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim... God. Proclaim God. Paul believed that Psalm 103 was for him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Don't forget all of His benefits. We see this comfort in the very first verses of this letter where he uses the word comfort seven times in two sentences. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's afflictions, it is for your comfort and your salvation that we are comforted. It is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken that we know For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. 
Paul knows comfort. And he's trying to get the church in Corinth to understand that his comfort doesn't come from their approval. His comfort comes from God. Well, the world turns to many different places for comfort, and it's the same places we're tempted to turn for comfort. And none of them are, are, are fulfilling. They're all empty. Entertainment and f- television and social media, or maybe relationships or family or friends or parties or work, success, wealth, financial security, all these we turn to for comfort. They're empty. Food, exercise, beauty, games or gambling or movies, sports, politics, shopping, alcohol, drugs, pornography, sex, food, coffee, literature, books, learning, community, solitude, Travel, theme parks, you name it. It's all there because people are looking for comfort. None of it will provide any comfort that's lasting. They're all empty. None of them satisfy. You know this. Augustine said the human heart will always be restless apart from Christ. This is true. Nothing in the world will ultimately comfort you. Drug addicts always need more drugs. People with money always need more money and nothing will satisfy. But the Christian should remember, like Paul, that serving the Almighty King, the God of comfort, gives us truth. We have truth and it actually does comfort because of Christ. So living the Christian life has given Paul a healthy life, an open-hearted life, a generous and forgiving life, an honest life. But the key is God. God is the key. When you're tempted to be depressed or despair, remember that God is at work. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. He knows what you need. So don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Don't be surprised when the fangs of your opponents come out and they tear into your soul. Don't be offended by their words, wicked though they are. We see through a glass darkly, but someday we will see face to face. In other words, we don't see what God is doing in His providence. But someday we will. We can't not possibly know all that He's doing, but we know that He is good. We know that He is righteous. We know that He is just. We know that He is loving and wise. He knows what we need. And He knows how to best glorify His own kingdom. He knows how we need to be sharpened. So Paul lives with an open heart. He lives generously because of his open heart with his persecutors. Also, he's honest with his church because of all of his openness, because of Christ. And really, it's all because of God. He turns to God. This is the anchor for the soul. So I'm going to conclude with the why and the how. How is this even possible? How are we to to actually find comfort in these truths? Well, it's found in God, in His person, in His work, in His attributes, who He is, and all of His promises. Well, how knowing all of this does it really help us in life? God uses practically what we call the ordinary means of grace. And that doesn't mean that they are ordinary things. 
That means that God uses ordinary things to accomplish supernatural, extraordinary things in the lives of His people. The peace that you have in your life because of Christ is not ordinary at all. The world does not have it. They're looking for it, but they do not have it. But through the Word, the sacraments, fellowship, and prayer, God lifts up the soul of the downcast and depressed. Through your daily reading and daily devotions and daily prayers and your accountability with each other and your fellowship every day, normal Christian living. Through your weekly Sabbath rest and submitting yourself to the preaching of the Word of God. Through your corporate prayers. Through your personal sharing and your, your seeking out biblical guidance. By all of these activities, God comforts the downcast and the, and the depressed because all of these things point your heart to Jesus. And that's the key. You may be helped by something other than this, by something more than this. You, you might really be helped by something else, by something more, but you will never find rest with anything less than this. And this is true. Spurgeon said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. These words were spoken by the man of sorrows. We all have our treasure in earthen vessels. And if there's a flaw in the vessel here and there, let us not wonder. We all will suffer from a a depressed spirit at times in our lives. But the God and Father of Jesus Christ The Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, is also with us. And in the dark valleys of life, Paul had found that to be true. I'm going to close with Samuel Rutherford. He says, Not one ounce, not one grain weight more is laid upon me than he has enabled me to bear. Faith has cause to take courage from our very afflictions. The devil is but a whetstone to sharpen the faith and patience of the saints. I know... He but heweth and polishes stones for the new Jerusalem. His cross is the sweetest burden that I ever bared. It is such a burden as wings are to a bird or sails to a ship to carry me forward to my harbor. Let our Lord's sweet hands square us and hammer us and strike off the knots of pride and self-love and world worship and infidelity that he may make us stones and pillars in his father's house. Think ye much to follow the heir of the crown who had experience of sorrows and was acquainted with grief. So if you are in Christ, you need to remember that you have what no psychiatrist could ever hope to have. You have the truth of God. Living the Christian life, living generously with others, living with open hearts is only possible in Christ by the Holy Spirit who is the comforter for your soul. Because of your knowledge of truth, you can go straight to the root issue of everything, which is sin, which has bent and warped all of humankind. Your problems aren't mental, they're not emotional. Ultimately, they're moral problems. You're separated from God by sin apart from Christ. And if you are apart from Christ, you need to know that nothing you can ever do will satisfy. Nothing. Only in Christ is our hope found. And yet for all of us, in Christ or not, we need to hear the man of sorrows calling to each of us to repentance 
and to comfort and to rest. Christ himself said, Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us an easy yoke and a light burden. Lord, life is hard, but we know that because of Jesus Christ, we have hope. And this is a hope that will not disappoint. This is a hope that will not falter. This is a hope that will always answer. The Holy Spirit living in us, our comforter, is there because of your great love. So we pray that we would remember your promises. We would remember your character and your attributes. We would remember that all that you have called us to is part of your divine plan. And that you would help us as we cope with life. As Paul did, to open our hearts. To trust you and rejoice even in the midst of suffering that you are in charge. And your good providence is good and wise. Help us to love each other and to be forgiving and to always pursue relationship. And more than anything else, Lord, help us to see you clearly and to love you more. In Jesus' name.